attention this morning. Romans 8, verse 12. I'll read all the way through verse 25. So then, brothers... Brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of His sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Some Bibles say to us, some say in us, some say upon us. There's glory, folks, and it's going to be in us, it's going to be to us, it's going to be upon us, it's going to be around us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for what for hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. In patience. This morning, God helping us, we will be moving beyond Romans 8.13. Now that's a big feat because we were there for six messages. This whole portion I just read, it, it includes a little bit of where we've been and a whole lot of where we're going in the weeks ahead. We're going to be looking at the remainder now. 8.13, six messages. Now we're going to begin to look on from there. Into the rest of Romans chapter 8. Verse 14. Although very clearly flowing out and connected, it's still part of the the foregoing thought. It's still part of the the sentence that was happening in verse 13. You can see verse 14, it's it's connected with it. But and although clearly flowing out of all that has gone before, it brings, now notice, brethren, it brings a distinct and a definite transition in power. 
Paul's thought. There is undoubtedly the beginning of a new theme right at this point. Now look, I don't say this because I read it somewhere or because it nicely fits into my sermon outline. I'm saying this because, in fact, there is one. There is a transition here. One that can clearly be discerned. There are at least indications that this change is taking place. Let me show them to you. Now, now folks, this, this is important. I'm not, I'm not emphasizing there's a transition in the letter for no reason. It's important. We're going to get to it. We're going to look at it. But the first thing is, I want you guys to clearly see that there in fact is one. Now, if you haven't been with us before this, let me just, let, let, let me just show you how this transition is taking place. There's, there's three ways I want to show you the first one. Think about this, folks. Do you remember way back to the beginning of Romans chapter 6? Hadn't been all that long ago where we read this verse. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's Paul's answer? By no means. How can we? That's his answer. How can we? Who died to sin still live in it. For five chapters, Paul has been showing the utter fallenness, the absolute universal depravity of man, and how fallen, depraved men, man, women, how are they are made right with God. Five chapters. You know what, folks? You know what Paul's been telling us? There are none good. You know what? I can look out at all these people here and I know by nature that not a one of you are good. You're worse than you think you are. A lot worse. A lot worse. See, I don't have to know you personally, but God knows you. And God tells us in His Word that men are bad. They're not only bad, there's none that are good. There's not even one. So if you say, I'm the exception, you're not the exception. It says that all are under sin. You say, I'm under sin. What that? It's above. It means you're under its power. You are in the power of sin. You are controlled by the law of sin. Like the law of gravity that you are controlled by that holds you down to this ground. You are held by the law of sin and death. It holds you. Paul tells us that. Men are in trouble. They are under the condemnation of God, under the wrath of God. And you know what? He tells us very clearly that there is only one way of escape. And you know why there's only one way of escape? Because there's only one way in which God forgives sinners. Only one way. Paul says, now look, this is, this is very important. Men are wrong at this point. 
And Paul makes it very clear. Very, very clear. We are not saved by law-keeping. Now, maybe that doesn't have a familiar ring with your ear, but let me put it in other terms. By keeping the law, it means doing what God tells you to do. That's basically what it means to be good or to be righteous. And what we're told in, in the Word here in the early five chapters of Romans is that it is not by your own law-keeping that any man gets right with God. Because some people in here have this mindset right now. You do. Because I did too. And many of the rest of us did as well that are now converted. We're saved. We're born again. We used to think this way. We thought this way that basically, you know what? Even though, yes, I know I've done some sin in the back. Back behind me. I, I know that's back there. I know I've lied before. I know I've done these things. I just have to clean my act up. You know, one of these days I'm going to come to God when, you know, but I know I have to clean my life up first. Look, that's exactly what Paul says will not get you right with God. What do you think? What do you think? Do you think that trying to get right with God undoes your sin in the past? I mean, think with me. Adam and Eve committed one sin. What did they do? God said, don't eat of that tree. They ate of the tree. And that was it. They fell. They were under sin. They lost the garden. They lost paradise. They lost communion with God. Because they ate a fruit they were told not to eat. You see, you look at your sin and you think it's not that bad a deal. God says, the wrath of God is revealed against all this unrighteousness and all this ungodliness of men. It is revealed. It's not just it will be. It is. The wrath of God is upon you even now. You sit here lost. It's upon you. You say, I don't feel it. What's this wrath? You tell me God's angry with me? You know what? You know what Romans chapter 1 says? It says that the way you know it is and the very expression of wrath against you is the fact God is letting you slide deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. You know what it says there three times? God gave them over. You say, yeah, well, you know, you look at your life. Why is it I'm able to do more sin today than I was able to do last year? Why is it it seems like my life is getting worse, not better? It's because God is giving you over. That is an expression of His wrath. Because you know what He's doing? He's fattening you up for the slaughter. To make your condemnation all the worse in that day. This is no light matter, folks. And there's only one way out of this whole thing. There aren't five ways. There aren't three ways. There aren't many ways. Christ is the only Savior. There is only one way out of this. And folks, you know what He says about all this? He says that God put forth His Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice to drink the very wrath of God and to die in the place of sinners. And I'll tell you this, even really, really bad sinners, no matter how much you've done, God put forth a Savior that is adequate and sufficient to save even the worst. Put Him forth as a propitiation to drink the wrath that you deserve. That's what we're told in these first five chapters. And here's the beauty of it. When an ungodly sinner takes that truth and believes it for himself, when he casts himself entirely on this mighty Savior, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sin. This is what happens. God instantly 
in a moment declares that ungodly wretch to be righteous. Perfect. Forgiven. That man is not legally declared to be righteous. He's declared to be the righteousness of God. That is incredible. God justifies the ungodly. Not because of their righteousness. They're ungodly. They don't have any. But because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are told in Romans 5 that it is because of the obedience of Christ that the many are made righteous. God sees His perfections and when I trust Him and what He accomplished by propitiation in my place upon that cross, God reckons to me His righteousness. It's on me. I'm robed with His righteousness counted perfect in the halls of heaven, folks. Not because I tried to be good. Not because I kept any law. Not because of anything that I did at all, but simply because I am united to Christ by faith. By faith we are justified. Not by works of righteousness that you have done. This is Gospel, folks. This is Gospel. Now, after these five chapters, all of a sudden, boom, we come in upon Romans chapter 6. You know what? Paul anticipates a response that's likely to arise against such a radically free offer of the gospel. If, now listen, if being saved is so free and by no means any kind of work that I do, and if I am accept, listen, if I am accepted by God, He accepts me. I'm made right with Him. I'm declared to be righteous. Listen, because of what Christ did and not because of what I did, and grace is sufficient to cover all my sins, no matter how bad I am, grace is always more sufficient than my badness then why not add a little bit more badness to the pile? Why not sin a little bit more? Because after all, I'm accepted because of Christ's righteousness, not because of my own. And so if it's not based on my righteousness, why, don't, why not be a little bit more unrighteous? It doesn't affect His righteousness at all, right? And that's my basis of acceptance. So what does it matter if I sin? In fact, if I sin, isn't the grace of God shown to be all the greater? Because the more sinful I am, the more wicked I am, the more it highlights the grace of God to save me. So why not sin more? You see, Paul anticipates that very question, that very reaction to this type of free, absolutely free gospel invitation. Now, Paul... Here's the thing. Paul, what do you think of that suggestion? That's where Romans 6.1 comes in. Are we to continue in sin as a Christian? And he says this, by no means, or God forbid. And then he says this, how 
Can we? Who died to sin still live in it? How can we? The clear point is, we can't. Now listen. This, this helps separate the wheat and the chaff in the church. Look, the offer of the gospel is incredibly free. But that never gives us a license to sin. In fact, it knows the reality about what God does in the life of a sinner that it actually becomes not possible for the sinner to continue in sin once saved. That's what he says. Isn't it? Are we to continue in sin? He says, God forbid. No way. By no means. He says, no, it's not possible. And you know what? From Romans 6.1, for two and a half chapters, you have reason after reason after reason why Christians do not continue in sin. Romans 6.4, you can't because you are risen to newness of life. Look, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. You can't be what you were. Romans 6.5, you can't sin because your old self was crucified. Look, what you were is dead. You are not the old man, folks. You are a new man. Romans 6.7, you can't continue in sin because you're free from sin. If you're free from sin, look, if people who continue in sin are in bondage to sin, but you as a Christian are free from sin. Romans 6.11, you can't continue because you are dead to sin. Look, if you're dead to something, that means that relationship is ended. Death ends relationships. 6.14, maybe one of the strongest statements he makes. You can't continue in sin because sin will have no dominion over you. 6.17, you can't because God made you obedient from the heart. Look, that's a good reason, folks. If God's the one doing this whole thing and He's making people obedient from the heart and that's what He does to people when He saves them, and it is, folks, because that text right there says it is, if He makes you obedient, that doesn't say He's making you disobedient. He's making you obedient. Romans 6.18 You can't continue in sin because you're now a slave of righteousness, not a slave of sin. Romans 6.19 You can't continue in sin because you're now a slave of God. You see, being a slave of God means you, you are obedient to Him. Romans 7.4 You can't because, you know what? You're now dead to the law. You're married to Christ. But look it, you're married to the Christ in order to bring forth fruit for God. That's not sin. That's fruit for God. That's righteousness. Romans 7, 6. You can't continue in sin because you now serve in the new life of the Spirit. And that connects us right with chapter 8. 8, 2. We can't continue in sin because the Spirit has freed us from the law. Again, we come back like a gravitational law that held us. In the, this principle of sin was one where when you're confronted by law and you're in the flesh and all you have is this dominion of sin hanging over your head, law never leads you to righteousness. That's what you see in Romans 7. you got a man, he knows the law, but there's no spirit there. 
And you know what? All he does is practice sin, practice sin, practice sin. You bust into eight, you've got the Spirit, and you know what you've got? You've got people that are fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. And I'll tell you this, you've got Romans chapter 8, verse 5, saying, if you're saved, you do not walk according to the flesh. You walk according to the Spirit. Your mind is not set on the things of the flesh, you're set on the things of the Spirit. You are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. You are of the Spirit. And you get to 8.13 and he says, look, I'm serious about this after two and a half chapters and I'm going to say it one more time. If you're going to live, you better be putting to death the deeds of the body because that's what's characteristic of everybody that lives. By the Spirit, you better be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. This is not optional. Now look, I'm not heaping this whole responsibility in your lap. All I'm saying is this. If you are justified, which I can't see, I can't feel, it's not, it's not shown on your forehead, but what I do know is a reality about all those who have truly trusted Jesus Christ is even though I can't visibly see your justification, I can see the manifestation of the Spirit at work in your life. And you will be putting to death sin. You will not be continuing in it. In 1 John, it says, if you practice sin, folks, you are not of God. And that has been his whole point all the way through here. It's, look, justification does not lead us to believe that we can go on in sin. Because there's something else happening in here, folks. We're raised to newness of life as well. Now, you know what? Right at 8.13, here's where I want to show you the transition. At 8.13... Paul makes that last statement about why we cannot continue in sin. But you know what? From 14 forward, there's no more reference to this at all. There's no more direct reference to why we don't continue in sin or how we overcome sin or how we better be, if we're a Christian, putting it to death or how we're obedient from the heart or how we live according to the Spirit as it versus this disobedient lifestyle. That, that's gone, folks. And see, we, we, from this point, transition out. But a second thing, and I want you to see this. All you have to do is let your eyes glance from, from Romans 8.1 all the way through 8.13. Guess what? The term flesh is there 13 times. 13 verses, 13 times. They're not all in... You know, it's not just one in each verse. There are some verses that have it three times. Some have it two times. But you know what? From 8.14 to the end of 8, flesh isn't mentioned one more time. Now, you know what the significance of that is? Again, it's transition. Where, where Paul consumed himself with the first half of 8 with this, with this comparison between those in the flesh and those in the Spirit, that comparison's gone now. He's done with that. But then let me show you another matter here. The third thing that indicates we're definitely at a point of transition. You you see, folks, I want you to see this. And if you look through Romans 8, you'll see flesh is all over, 1 through 13, nowhere from 14 to the end. But let me tell you something else. A third indication that there, I'm not making this up, and it's just not a dream in my own head, that there is a major transition happening in the letter right at this point, is this. The terms Son of God, children of God, begin to show up immediately at verse 14. 
And it doesn't just happen once. It happens repeatedly. If you'll look there, you will see in verse 14, in verse 15, in verse 16, in verse 17, in verse 19, in verse 21, in verse 23, you find the title, sons of God, sons, children of God, children, heirs of God. So listen, a theme that has not turned up anywhere before in Romans is now suddenly dropped in our lap seven times in ten verses. So from verse 13 to verse 14, Paul's subject matter transition from the emphasis that Christians are in the Spirit, not in the flesh, to the emphasis that Christians are children of God. Do you guys see that I'm not making this up? It's not artificial. It really is there. It's really happening. <laughs> okay. So, we see that there's a transition. You say, well, you have brother, you a lot out of that. You see it. Paul is ushering in a new theme. Dealing with the sonship of believers. But don't we need to ask something here? Like, maybe, so what? You know, why does it matter? It's nice in everything, but, you know, don't we really have to ask, how does this affect you and me right here, right now? It's nice that we notice a shift is taking place, but in reality, what? What practicality, what bearing does this have on my life, on your life? I mean, is it going to change the way I sleep tonight? Is it going to change the way you live your life tomorrow? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Beloved, we can be indifferent. Right? You guys sit there and I don't know what you're thinking. I'm hungry. I wish lunch would get here. It's crowded. I feel claustrophobic. I hear this child over here making a noise. I can't pay attention. These walls are yellow. It's distracting me. I don't know what you're thinking. But you know, we can start thinking about things like sonship. Son of God. Child of God. And really we can ask, so what? And we can be indifferent to truths. In reality, truths that might make an angel just gasp at the reality, at the significance, wonderment of a certain doctrine. Or, and, and yet we can look at it and... You know, scratch our head, think about whatever we're going to do this afternoon. Our minds can drift. You know, it might just be because I'm a poor preacher. It might be because we're dense in the head. But the bottom line is, we have to admit, many times we just are not moved by things that we ought to be moved by. You know what? If we're not moved by even thinking about being a son of God, even the fact that this type of title is given to mankind, you know what? It's not because it isn't overflowing and, and lavished with, 
with the ideas of freedom and joy and love and hope and riches and glory, if we're unmoved by these things, in, in reality, we should probably sit down and weep that our hearts are so hard and our love is so cold and our passions are so misdirected. Look at Brethren, I know what happens because it happens to me. We might read this. You know, you, how many of you can't actually see right there in verse 14 the three words, sons of God? Or in verse 16, the words, children of God. Of course you can see them. We're not all illiterate. We, we have the ability to read. You guys have some mental acknowledgement that these words are here in your Bible. I mean, you see them. Yep, we can read. You've got, you got some grasp that Paul is, in fact, introducing this concept of sonship. But we're slow. Precious realities often leave us just neutral and unmoved. Now look, I've, I've thought about this. I, I, I mean, I thought about this with myself. Okay, here I am transitioning over. I was excited about all this stuff in aid, and boy, it's been going on six messages in, in Romans 8, 13, and now I'm transitioning. My whole mindset's having to change. I'm looking at this. You know, you start reading it. As a, you know, as I go to study, I begin to read it and read it and read it, and I'm just saying, Lord, what's, what's here? What is this? You know, I'm so... I'm so into this Christian don't continue in sin mindset and now all of a sudden you're just throwing all this child of God stuff at me and how does this become real? I mean, the thing is, I want... First, as I read this, Lord, I want to be excited about this. And then I want the Christians and the church to be excited about it. And then I want the lost to look at it and get excited and think, I want to have that. And so I'm thinking, Lord, how can I do this? And I don't know, you guys, you have to bear with me. But this, this illustration came to my mind. And I'm, I'm going to throw it out here at you and see if you guys can kind of relate to this and enter in. Imagine that you guys discover. You can all put your place here. Imagine you discover that you have this distant relative. And he just died. And you guys find out, to your amazement, that he left you in his will. You're going to get an inheritance. And you know what? They, they call you to some location where there's, been, there's a distribution being made of the things that have been left to the different people that have, have part of this inheritance. You show up to claim your part of it, and they bring you out a diamond. It's in a case, and they open it up before you, and here's the thing, it's yours. It is legally yours. It belongs to you. But there's only one problem. You know what? You are senseless to its glory, its beauty, its perfection, its size, its clarity, its value. You know why you're senseless to it? Now, this is my story. It's my illustration, so I can make anything happen here to you that 
I want to make happen. But here's why, or here's the only big problem in it. You went to the eye doctor earlier that day and he put some drops in your eyes and you guys can't see. Everything's fuzzy and all you can see is light or dark and it's going to pass in a couple days, but you can't see. That's the problem. you got this diamond there, but you can't set your eyes on it and uh, you're going to be nearly blind for a few days. But here's the thing. Because you can't see it real well and your, your sense of sight is all distorted, you're ignorant to what lies before you. And that's how it is when Paul sets the title Sons of God before us. It's like a diamond in which there is beauty and there is perfection and glory and magnificence and value and it's ours It legally belongs to us, but here's the problem. We're dull and listless. Our sight is not as clear as we can't see anything as we be able to see it. But okay, back to the illustration. Now imagine with me again, you've inherited this diamond from your relative, and let's suppose that on that day when you went to receive your inheritance, there's a probate attorney there, Wait, we have one here. See, it's my story. It's David. David is there. And David knows that when inheritances are distributed, it's a good thing to have witnesses involved because you never want the person that's getting it long later and say he didn't get it. So David brings a witness. So this witness just happens to be one of the foremost diamond experts in the world. And although you can't be the diamond, he certainly can. He cares examines this thing, and you know what he does? The witness, the guy who's this foremost expert, he, after he's looked at the diamond, he pulls you aside. And he says this in your ear. He says, sir, you possess the largest, most exquisitely perfect diamond I have ever encountered in my life. He's resonating in his voice. This guy is excited. And, and you know what? Even though you can't see it, you start getting excited yourself. Because you can hear it in his voice. It's trembling. This guy realizes he's found that pearl of great price. That This is the thing he's been looking for. He looks, he says to you, you know, I can tell you that whoever that relative was, he loved you with a very special kind of love. You know what you do at that point, folks? You rejoice. Right? Because this guy's the expert. And he knows what it's And even though you can't see it, and you don't have a proclamation of it, because this guy's the expert, he knows what he's talking about, and this guy's trembling out of his shoes with excitement, you start to... It's contagious, because you're thinking, whoa, I got something great here. Even though I couldn't see it in the beginning, this guy tells me. Now, folks, someone who knows what he's talking about tells you about the value of a thing like that. He's the expert. He's excited. You begin to realize this is definitely something to get excited about. You see, folks, you might be to the value of possessing the title Son of God. You might be dull to it. Listen, all I'm doing today is an introduction. We're going to get into this stuff a lot more so if you wonder, well, brother, you're not really examining the text here. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. But I'm trying to get us to a point of anticipation. 
information. Like, we really want to know about this. This sounds like a good thing. You see, as as we might be to all this, you of possessing this title. We might be dull to it. We might not see it as we should. Our eyes might be blinded. But I'll tell you this. There's a guy. Well, I'm going to tell you about this guy. He is full of the Holy Spirit. This is God's expert. He not only is full of the Holy Spirit, when he speaks, his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. When he comes along and he sets his eyes on something, it begins to excite him. He's the expert. He knows what things really worth. He, he, he's a right take on the value of things. He takes, he takes one look at this fact that you own and you possess this title. And you know what he says to you? He says, You've got to see this. Behold! Look! Just fathom. Try to contemplate. Try to grasp what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. He can't... Listen... That's a text right out of 1 John 3, chapter or verse 1. Behold, what manner. He can't even describe the manner, the kind, except by saying its vastness, its warmth, its tenderness, its unique classification and kind can be sized up only the vastness of the treasure that this loving God has poured out upon our heads by calling us children of God. Do you realize what I'm saying here? The title child of God is a gift and a privilege that John looks at and he realizes that it is such an expression of the love of God with such intensity and magnitude that, you know what? This is no exaggeration. If you search John's writing, you will find John is only staggered to this degree by one other thing. And it's God not sparing His only Son and giving Him as a propitiation for our sins. The only other thing in Scripture that, that causes wonderment and amazement to that degree in John the Apostle is the fact that the fallen sons of Adam could ever be called sons of God. And I'll tell you what, if you can't see the glory in it, let John be like that witness that begins to get excited and says, Whoa! This expresses such a kind of love of God that I have just never seen before. This is such, this is, you have a treasure that is unspeakable glory. And I, I'll tell you, I'll ask you this who in the world calls us sons of God? Who is the one calling us this? Men call themselves all sorts of things. They give themselves all sorts of titles. But I'll tell you what. There's people. I was just on a, on a Muslim website yesterday. It says we're all sons of God. Let me tell you this. This same Apostle John in 1 John 3.10 says this. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I'll tell you what, not everybody is a child of God. And not everybody is a child of God just because they call themselves a child of God. You are a child of God if God calls you a child of God. And God only calls you a child of God if you've been justified. That's what Romans is all about. If you're not justified, you're not a child of God. And you don't have the privilege. But folks, do you see the connection in Romans and in 1 John? But if you practice righteousness, you are a son of God. That's what we've seen for two and a half chapters in Romans. Folks, this is what you have to look for. You look at your life. And I know there's struggles. I know there's a war. I know there's a battle. But I'm saying this to you. If you can look at your life and you can say, I'm not always what I want to be and I don't always get victory as fully as I'd like to, but I'll tell you this. God came into my life and He has given me victory over sin. And I am not what I used to be. And there is a change and a transformation. And I can... You know what? You are the only ones on the face of the earth that have entitlement to being called a son of God. The only ones. And I'll tell you what. It's, it's an amazing thing if we just thought that God called any stupid, sinful son of rebellious Adam a son of God. If He called any that. And you think, you think just about that. Look, if God wants to break into this world and save men from damnation, He could have saved us from it just by saying, okay, I'm going to send my son to deliver you from it, and this is what you get out of it. No more hell, I'm just going to annihilate you. And you know what? For those in hell, that would be a supreme glory. He could have said, I'm just going to give you perpetual sleep. That's a nice thing for me to do. It'll cost my son's blood. I'll send him down there to do that. He could have sent his son down here to say, well, you know what? You're going to get basically what the, what the Jehovah's Witnesses say you're going to get. You're just going to live here forever and you're going to go on with life kind of like you are. And, and you know, I'm going to send my son to get the for you. Or I'm just going to ship you off, you know, Somewhere else, faraway country, faraway planet somewhere. That's what you're going to get if I send my son. You won't have to go to hell, but I'm just going to stick you way out. You know what he could have said? He could have said, okay, what? We'll, may, we'll, we'll turn you into a, a gardener out here or a doorkeeper over here. Or maybe even let you into the inner court. Yeah, we'll let you be a knight over there. Or, or we'll, we'll let you be one of the duke or duchess. No, what God does. My love on display. I'm going to do it in. And you know what? It's not like God has to be forced. God overflows with this. It's not like we have to constrain God to hold back His love. Scripture says God is love. It's all. It's, a, it's like John is saying, "Look, God is love. That's what He is. It overflows from Him. And when He's ready to show love, He just goes the utmost mile. He says, I'm going to take these sinful rebels, and I'm not going to just make them a knight. I'm not going to just spare them from hell. They're going to." sons and my daughters. I'm bringing them into my very family. I am going I'm to extend this love to such a way that it... And, and you know what? The fact that God would do any son of Adam is amazing. But you know what ought to really stir us up in this place? Is if God's done it to you. Amen. It's an amazing thing that God would do it to anyone. Amen. But the fact that very few have that, have that title from God. A lot of people have it in their own estimation. But the very fact that there are few upon the face of this earth that can truly be called sons and daughters of God and the fact that 
You might be in this place and you can say, I possess it. And you know, here's John over here. He's all shaking. He's just so excited. And he's trying to you to come along and say, I see it, I see it. Because he's saying all the time, behold, behold, it doesn't matter if the doctor put those drops in your eyes. Look at that thing. This is great. This is a possession worth having, folks. This is not something that is light and trivial and fluffy and we can just pass over it and say, oh, this doesn't matter. Now look, folks, you look at verse 16 there and it says that the Spirit of God is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I'll tell you what, folks. This is the heart of true Christianity. That God gave His Spirit to us with one of the primary purposes to communicate this love and this affection and this glory to us. The Spirit of God comes to us and bears this witness to us. He communicates it. Beloved, God Let me tell you something, just an ending here. Listen. When you think about God sending His Spirit to come bear witness to us, not just guys like John, but His own Spirit comes to bear witness to us. You know what that tells me? If God sends His Spirit to us to bear witness that we are His sons, to experience that warmth and that affection, what that tells me is very clearly God would have us to seek after experiences of His love. And that's really what's encompassed in that idea of being a child of God. It is a love of a father. It is the son the daughter able to cry out, Abba, Father, and the Father being there. The Father in His love being there to pick us up, to help us, to love us. That's the real... That's what you need to pull out of this thing. Look, these experiences and expressions and communications of love flow directly out of the cross of Jesus Christ. What God has done for us in Christ. But I'll tell you this, if anything about these texts before ring true to us, it's this. God does not want you to have just some formal Calvinism, some book knowledge about your relation to Him. He wants to send His Spirit. He does send His Spirit. He communicates to our spirit that we are sons. He wants to lavish us with His love. He wants this Christianity to be true and real. This is not the Catholic thing where you, you go around doubting all the time. You going to heaven? Well, I hope so. Scripture says God wants us to know and have assurance that we are His and that we are loved by Him and that He gave His Son for us. Folks, we can have all this stuff. We can have our confessions, the Reformers, the Puritans. But I'll tell you this, if you do not experience firsthand the subjective aspect of God's Spirit bearing witness with your Spirit, sorry, you have missed the heart of the matter. With all your learning, you are bearing impotent and intellectual. And that is not the kind of Christianity I want. This is the real thing. 
Paul's entering into the real heart of Christianity. He dealt with it back in Romans 5.5. This God of ours pours His love into our heart through these expressions that Christ has died for sinners. And I'm one of those for whom He has died and He has made me a child of God. And He whispers to us through this Spirit's testimony and witness, You are my son. You are my daughter. And I'll tell you this, if you sit in this place today and you've been wondering, am I a true Christian? Am I not a true Christian? This is reality. Don't write this off. Don't say this is only for people. It is not. It is for those who are truly Christians. The Spirit bears witness. The Spirit bears testimony. You have some cold kind of religion where you think you're trying to work and make yourself presentable to God, or you've got this type of religion where it's the long face type and mothballs and that type of thing, and the thing smells dusty, and you think a long faced, bearded old man kind of religion. I'm telling you, this, this, this Christianity thing, God means to smother us with His love. You may get suffering and persecution and difficulties in the midst of it, and that's coming there, folks. But I'll tell you this, in the midst of all this, whether the sun shines or whether it doesn't shine, God says He's going to come and smother us with His love through expressions of the Spirit of God. This, folks, is at the heart of the matter. I'm not talking about just some happy feeling because you've got to raise at work. I'm not talking about just this good feeling that comes along with the fact that the singing is, is loud and the music sounds nice. I'm talking about when words about Jesus Christ come up on this screen and the Spirit of God drives home the reality of that truth in a way that He's saying to you, You are mine! You are mine! I am your Father! Inside you is resonating, Abba, Abba! You're crying out inside, Yes, you are my God! You sent your you love me. I'm one of the chosen. I'm there. That is true Christianity. That's what we long for. That's why those of us that know the real thing in here would never go back. Because that right there beats new cars and sex and alcohol and drugs and partying and all the things we set our heart on before. This is the real thing, folks. Amen. 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 You're excused.